This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 17 starts after this. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Would Bill Clinton have been president if Ross Perot hadn't been in the mix? And what did you, did you ever do anything with Ross Perot? Oh, I knew Ross Perot. Uh, yeah, the, um, uh, well, so that it's a who, you know, we never know for sure. Like, reminding everybody, not, Ross Perot got 19% of the vote. He did. It's stunning. He got 19%. Yeah, I'm not convinced Clinton would have gotten elected in nine. But again, I have not data on it. It's just a hunch. Uh, but, you know, if, if Ross would have stayed out of that, uh, I, um, Bush 41 may have been able to win. Uh, they dis, He disdained Bush, Ross Perot. He really disliked the Bush family. It was a feud between Perot of Dallas and the Bushes of Houston in Texas back then. And Perot was a couple, like a two-issue candidate, mainly the sucking sound you hear is your jobs. He was deeply opposed to NAFTA. And I think Donald Trump inherited that 19% when he ran in 2016 um, against NAFTA. Um, there's a loose vote there. There's anti-NAFTA vote. Uh, but, Ross, but, as a person, I liked. I mean, I gave a speech in Dallas to the daughters of uh, the Second World War. These were women who had a father who fought in World War II. And it's a big, giant speech I gave at a huge convention hall filled by women whose parents dads either died or served in World War II. And it was funded by Ross Perot. And uh, he asked if I wanted to have a private dinner with him. So I went to his club and the two of us had a an, an, uh, really interesting time. I've subsequently talked to him more interesting in this regard. He wasn't in the press at that time and I still, I think it is somewhere out there now. Um, but he, Brian, um, had bought, or not bought, when, when we killed Osama bin Laden, our SEALs FedExed the famous walking stick of Osama bin Laden to Ross Perot, the shepherd stick, because he and Pro Industries gave jobs to all SEALs once they left the SEALs, gave military, ex-military people, particularly Navy, because he was an Annapolis guy, Ross Perot, gave them jobs for a long time, still does, Pro Industries. And so as a thank you to Ross, they gave him that walking stick, and he had it, and I'm very proud of it. And I, w- I, I didn't think quick enough your, uh, that day. In this case, I did try. I said, can't we get a photo of you holding the stick, and I'll write a, I want to write a piece for Vanity Fair with your photo and tell the story. I said, just be simple. Not, not a deep think, just the little story of how they, you know, and he said, "No, no, no! They'll take him. They'll take the stick away from me. It'll it'll get tagged, and they'll say it should be in a court, and that it doesn't belong." And he said, "I'm donating it to the Seal Museum in Florida, and uh, it just needs to cool off a little." And 
Have, um, you, have you ever been to that SEAL museum? I have. I took my kids to it. Everybody listening to this, go see it. It's a great Where museum. Where is it? Uh, it's, I attacked it from Vero Beach, where I was staying, and drove my family to it. It's just in the central California, um, central Florida coast. I forget the exact town, which is unlike me, but uh, it's right there. It, it's, um, you know, we're near the Space Coast in uh, mid, mid, mid Florida, and it's a great museum. Uh, and it's a great history of the seals, and it's all told there. It's first rate. And so it made sense to me that someday that stick will be there. When Ross Perot ran in 92, he would tout the fact, not tout, but he would complain about the fact that the, the uh, deficit was $3 trillion. Today it's over $28 trillion. What happened? And does it matter? I'm not smart enough to know whether it matters. I would think it does. I spent, as you have, our whole life trying to not get in debt. Uh, and yet here we are, and we keep getting more and more in debt, and we keep passing it on. I guess it's Keynesian economics run amok, or we've lost the grip. But I pointed out, but 2000, say what you like about Bill Clinton. We had a surplus. He worked with difficult Congress, then, you know, Newt Gingrich and all that, and they... Uh, they had the economy under control in 2000. In the 21st century, we, that's become less and less an important issue. I mean, Donald Trump was not a fiscal conservative. Um, Barack Obama wasn't a fiscal conservative. Um, and George W. Bush wasn't. Everybody talks about the balanced budget now, but nobody really works to, to do it. So either they know more than I do that it doesn't really matter, it's not real money, we're able to jiggle it, or we have a crisis on our hands uh, with uh, this massive debt, and how are we going to pay for programs like Social Security and the like down the future if we don't start finding a way to get the debt under control? Heard you talk about this before, but explain to us how you got to know Nancy Reagan and why she picked you to do the Reagan Diaries. Um, I had been recommended to her. Well, I wrote an article for The New Yorker on Ronald Reagan's pen pal, a woman named Lorraine Wagner, who ended up writing, um, Reagan wrote her hundreds of letters. Did she keep them? She kept them. Did you I, meet her? I did. I got a random call from Lorraine um, and said that she had all these letters from Ronald Reagan. I immediately thought they were Xerox letters, and she was, you know. Where did she live? She lived in Philadelphia. And she told me she worked for the IRS for all these years. And the more I interrogated her on the phone, I just begged her. I said, Lorraine, can't you just fax me one of all your couple hundred letters, or, you know, one, so I can get pick a winner and let me see the tone and tenor of it. And she said, no, I won't fax it. I don't have a fax machine. And I said, is there a motel near you? And she said, well, I live near a Marriott. And I said, go and just one, they'll fax it for you. She wouldn't. She said, you have to come and see them. What, what year was this? 2004, let's say. And you went to see her? Um, and yeah, and so I got on a plane to Philadelphia, and I was wondering, why am I doing this? Because it's probably going to be a, a, a dead end. And I went, and she pulled out her box, and oh my God, they were all of these original letters, long from Ronald Reagan. Did you Reagan. go to her home? I went to her home. What was she? Was she, she married? Lived in a very small home. Um, 
Um, I don't. She wasn't. Her husband was not there. I think he may have been deceased. But uh, she, we sat and I went through them and I could not believe it because she started his fan club in Philadelphia when he was a movie actor in his first film. So when Reagan had no fan base, she became like Gaga with Ronnie. Would, that, would this have been the forties? Yeah. And they got um, a. They just became friends. She then went out to Ronald Reagan Day in uh, in Illinois, uh, Dixon, Illinois, to celebrate the actor. It'd be like a young actor now going to his hometown, and he just started corresponding with her, and they became very good friends. They weren't involved with each other in any any romantic way, not at all. They, in fact, Nancy loved her. Um, but they just wrote, and he would write her while he's White House stationery regularly about after visiting Bitburg or a fire, really frank stuff to her. And I thought this is an unknown friendship. This is something really remarkable. And I asked her if I could write an article for the New Yorker um, for it. I, I thought it would be a good forum, and and David Remnick, the editor there, agreed, and um, I did it, and it got a lot of notice and Mrs. Reagan thought it was a really good article and then my name surfaced and Pete Wilson former governor of California said oh yeah I would be perfect I knew Pete Wilson from the World War II Museum in New Orleans he was actively engaged and and he gave me a thumbs up and he was working with the Reagan Foundation at that point and so I flew to Wilson was my my middleman, and he said, "Look, the thing is, when you meet Mrs. Reagan, do not mention Edmund Morris, the biographer." She was feels, this after the book? Yeah, she felt very burned by Dutch, extremely burned, because she trusted Edmund Morris. Stop there for a second. Why did she feel so burned about that book? Because he fictionalized, he turned it into a novel. You mean the the fictional gimmick that he used yes, ticked her off very much. I can't tell you how much, because she felt she had was a good judge of character. That was her main calling card. Um, she felt that she could read people, and that's how she was a protector of Ronnie, who was not good at reading people. He liked everybody. So she thought that Edmund Morris was good. She did, and she felt betrayed. He never, he really never gave very much of himself. I mean, he wasn't outgoing at all. She just met him on a tour. He had written The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Both Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan read the book and liked it. Uh, He liked Theodore Roosevelt a lot, and he didn't read a lot of heavy history. Reagan read a lot. But he would read his like he liked um, like Larry McMurtry's westerns, like Billy the Kid, and you know he liked the western genre a little like Eisenhower. But he read he read quite a few books, and he'd invite writers when he'd read a book. Reagan more than probably he gets credit for, but he did read The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, and they picked him, and he had Alzheimer's, and Nancy felt burned, and he, to get it fictionalized infuriated her so. When she was looking to give the diaries to me, she wanted to make sure I'm not another, you know, this was like her everything, Ronald Reagan's diaries of the White House. And if I had some mention, she was hesitant to release the diaries because she didn't want to get stung. Where did you meet her first? 
Um, so I, and then the other thing I was told by P. Wilson, if you get in a weird, you know, gets if conversation goes sideways, you're not working well, just talk about movies. And I said, do you mean like her movies? <laughs> and he said, no, any movie. What's going on now? She's just very interested in, you know, what, who's up for an Academy Award or whatever. And I said, great. That was it. Those two bits of advice. And I went and met her at the, um, the Beverly Hills um, Hotel. It's the old and, uh, Merv Griffin Hotel? Yep. Merv was a good friend of hers. And, I, and she'd gone there forever. And we sat at a booth that was designated the Nancy Reagan booth. And they had a salad, the Nancy Reagan Cobb salad. And we sat there and ate. And we talked. Uh, and I told her I'd like to do the book of the diaries. Uh, it made clear to me that I wouldn't be able to Xerox them or... or um, I wasn't going to be able to do, you know, one week shopping. I would have to be invested in it because I'd have to trans work with transcription of it and be there. And long story short, um, I ended up getting the gig. And um, we, my wife Anne and I moved to California with our two children, Johnny and Benton. And then where our third child, Cassidy, was born there while I was editing the Reagan Diaries. How much interaction did you have with Nancy Reagan while you were there? Quite a bit. Um, we became friends. Um, What's that mean? Um, quite a bit. Um, I, know, I mean friends. What, what does it mean to become friends with Nancy easy Reagan? Easy shorthand. Talk to her. No issues ever rose between us. I was just going to the library, doing my work. Um, her people that were running her life, at least from my point of view, were running, running her life was a Duke Blackwood, who's still a friend of mine, and he runs the Reagan Foundation, and Joanne Drake, who was is salt of the earth, who I just love and adore, and um, my wife was pregnant, coming to visit me, and, you know, Nancy Reagan would pop in, and it was, you know, they adopted me a little bit, and it was a good experience, and I got it all done, and what really made us get a little closer was that, for some reason, even though he owned these personally and kept them handwritten, that they needed a security clearance uh, of some kind. And I never got involved with it because they were taking care of it. But she wasn't very happy that some of the things were being retracted on, like Saudi, on Saudi Arabia and on um, weapons systems. Were you, were you told you could never talk about that? Yeah, I couldn't include them in the book. I, nobody looked over what I was doing, but I said that, you know, when I turned in what was the version, there there was so much of it, I, you know, I had to reduce it and, and get it, but I had picked a couple bits that got nixed, and she did not like that, and she got on the phone with whoever and got some reinstated. Uh, I believe in the end, there was just one uh, hunk that was not allowed to be published about Saudi Arabia. And beyond that, um, she, in other words, Brian, she fought as any historian, not me, any would want inclusion. She stood with me saying, I'm on your side. Ronnie wrote it. I want it out there. Ronnie, Ronnie signed it. Release it. Was, was he alive attitude. at the time? No. He had just passed, and she thought the time was right to bring uh, let a scholar bring them out. I... At one moment when I got these, I had told her at the lunch, 
the our only awkward moment, I said, um, I said, well, Mrs. Reagan, you need to know now, if you give me these, you may get some conservatives wondering why you gave them to me, because there's some really loyal people, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm seen as left center, and so I'm not, you might, I just, she glared at me, just angry, and she said, my son is more liberal than you'll ever be. What's your point? I'll remember it forever. <laughs> she said, just like, and I was like, well, uh, well, I don't really have a point. I just was trying to let you know. I mean, she was direct about everything. And, um, but yes, I, 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 and so when we got the book done, we did some events together. We signed, uh, I did, we signed some stuff for certain places, but particularly Eureka. We didn't. She didn't want to forget your Illinois. Yeah, she wanted to forget the wonderful college there that he loved, and it gets forgotten a lot in Reagan lore. But they they run programs and all. It was a little under loved, maybe, and she wanted to make sure some of that love went to Eureka of the diaries. And I went out there and spoke on them and things. And uh, so, in the end, though, here, here you are. You're center left. <clears throat> you helped rehabilitate, not even not rehabilitate, but you helped <clears throat> create an image for Ronald Reagan with the letters and with the diaries, because they're primary sources. And then the Andersons did the uh, the, uh, the the radio shows. Uh, the yellow pads and all that kind of stuff, and that, uh, proving that he actually wrote his own oh, stuff. He, he, there was a lot more depth to him than anybody knew. And uh, but for me, I was bringing out a primary source. I mean, these are important primary sources: handwritten letters of president, daily diary kept in the White House. Uh, I wasn't editorializing on them uh, in the sense of you know this is this entry's good, this not. It's just here it is, people. Here's what he thought. And the big takeaway from doing the diaries for me if it, you know, was how much he liked Franklin D. Roosevelt and voted for him four times, but did not like the great society of Lyndon Johnson. And he didn't like that people on the left mixed them, like New Deal is great society, it's big government. He liked FDR's programs, workers' programs, building bridges, you know, tunnels and all of that a lot. What he didn't like was Johnson, what he felt was the overreach of the 1960s. And that um, that came out. And then also a kind of spiritual side to Ronald Reagan, particularly, Brian, after he was shot. Um, and he writes about that's the only time he didn't record in the diary was when he was shot because he was incapacitated. But then he said, I looked up at the ceiling and realized I'm alive and I'm going to donate my work, my life for God. And he started talking about getting rid of nuclear weapons. And it's a constant theme in there, his fear of nuclear weapons uh, and the need to find ways to fall the Cold War with Gorbachev, but also start doing real arms reduction if it got down to zero nuclear weapons, he would be happy. That startled me. But it helped me by talking like George Schultz, because Schultz spent his whole time after the Reagan years working to rid the world of nuclear weapons. Um, they were very concerned about it, were Schultz and Reagan. Did you ever meet George, uh, not George Schultz, uh, Ronald Reagan? Uh, I never met Reagan. I've never met him as president. I never met him as governor. 
Um, I interviewed Gerald Ford about him once in Rancho Mirage, and he did not like Ronald Reagan very much because uh, he thought Reagan was his bigger obstacle to his political career than anybody else. But did he no. tell you that? Yeah. Yeah, he was very, he, because they did a peace pipe in Kansas City, uh, Reagan and Ford, but Ford felt that Reagan in 76 was criticizing him so much and damaged Ford's ability to beat Jimmy Carter. Richard Nixon, um, I watched you and Luke Nichter together at Politics and Prose talking about the Nixon tapes. How did you put that book together? There are two volumes of the Nixon tapes. They're massive. Um, What we realized, and Luke realized, is that a lot of these tapes, you're dealing with thousands of hours, just never, you would think the press would have had at them. But no, uh, um, nobody did any there. You have to listen so carefully and so long, and a lot of the tapes are just clanking of, you know, they were voice activated. So a lot of it is just, you know, weird noises and coughs and shuffling and you've got to be very patient and then you have to have the best equipment to listen to it and then you've got to um, be able to decipher the voices and who it is. Let me ask you this though. Back in April of 74, the government published tapes, the transcripts of tapes. What's the difference between what the government published and what you all did? The government was publishing what was working on the Watergate case. The uh, Nixon had everything taped from 71 onwards. So in order for you to be the editor of this, where did you physically have to go? Well, Luke, they're available at the National Archives in um, Washington, in Maryland, and um, also, you know, some had, were making it online. Luke Nichter created a Nixon tape site, and he started going after all the tapes, and he would time the National Archives started releasing batches of them. Not all at once, but meaning, in, in, you know, just recently, recently being the last decade, they started dribbling them out. No transcripts. No transcripts. So you have to go and do that kind of work. So did Luke do this yeah, himself? Yeah, Luke, Luke was the pioneer in getting listening and getting the transcripts right and making sure that we're fact-checked, they're double-checked. But we had other people, a friend of mine, we, we did ways to double-check things. Uh, Luke and I developed a, a, a what we call the Vanity Fair rule. Uh, we did an excerpt for Vanity Fair, the Nixon tapes, and... A guy there named David Friend said, what's new in the tapes is what's un-Google. You can't Google. Because some of this stuff had leaked. Some reporters got batches and just picked out two sensational lines and left. You know, ne- next story. And so we were able to say, wow, all this stuff's never been heard, never been known. You know, so our whole Vanity Fair uh, essay that Luke and I did had... All of it was new. None of it had ever been out before. But most of these two fat volumes were new to the public. And again, you know, that case, we tried to say, Luke and I, was, we, our main objective, what's historically important? What is he talking about that matters in history? Secondly, um, on this idea of Nixon's cursing, anti-Semitism, how much of it can you take? I mean, a samplings of it are enough. 
We're not going to have a book of it. Somebody could do that. But we were trying to really say, what did he really spend his time on? What did he think? And so the, the books are, are really seminal. And, you know, they're sold at the Nixon Library and Yorba Belinda as the did, definitive books of the tapes. Did, did the Secret Service, and I remember Luke talking about this, did the Secret Service know that they were being taped as they walked around the Oval Office or in the different places where he was being, uh, where he had microphones? He, well, you know, he wired up everywhere, Nixon. Um, and so there was, you, you know, Camp David was being taped. I mean, he, he taped all over, so nobody knew. When did you ever say, ah? Well, Alexander I- Butterfield, you know, is the one who broke the, the of course, famously that there was a taping system, and, and a few people knew about it. But, but, but when did you say, when you were listening or reading the transcripts, oh, my goodness, I can't believe he just said this? A lot. But the thing is, <laughs> the thing about Nixon was he, you, this is where biography matters, uh, and maybe even psychological biographies, he had a, he never was like one of the boys, Nixon. He never was like part of the football team crowd. He was never one of the in kids, but he had learned to talk with a lot of bluster in front of men to seem tough. And so he suddenly, you know, get those son of a bitches out of here. Tell those bastards to go. And a lot of it is just his rhetorical way of seeming tough. And so when he would tell Henry Kissinger something like, what's going on, a wounded knee or something, well, you know, I don't care, get tanks to run over the... Th-. He would say this stuff and there would be no policy happening. It was just Nixon blowing off steam. And so the question becomes trickier is what on the tapes affected policy and what one is just showing Nixon's personality. And... Um, they're, they're both available. I mean, they're really fascinating, endlessly interesting. You get online, and they're rather inexpensive to oh, buy. Yeah. Why oh, is yeah. that? Um, who, and who published them? Um, we got them published by Harcourt um, uh, Press. They probably made, you know, honest to God, I mean, these books each are so thick. But we wrote um, introductory to each section, you know, I'd work on prose, set it up. Here's a little piece of transcript. Here's my writing, you know, transcript, writing, transcript, writing, transcript, writing, a lot of work. And uh, at the end, it gives you a pretty good view of them. We were very pleased with them. And they're available. I mean, they're out there in bookstores and stuff. I mean, I see them a lot. But you got to want to invest in Nixon a lot. It's not a... However, you can dip into those Nixon tapes. You can look at a particular section... I still go, you know, there's Joe Biden's um, wife and kid killed in the car accident. There's Nixon calling Biden. I mean, you know, it's it's everything going on in there. We happen to include that, but we could have done that on 20 other people who died that Nixon was doing a call like that. Um, and in person with people, he was very much the Boy Scout, you know, who... who the, the dichotomy of Nixon, one man, because sometimes you can listen to him on the tape, and then a group comes into the White House, and it's like two different people. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. I mean, but not too surprising, but he, the bastard said to them, like, hello, how are you? And he's so formal, like unbelievably formal, that you would think this is the last human being that would ever curse in his public presentation to people. 
Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching Douglas Brinkley in the video library at cspan.org.